Hi, and welcome to the Miseducation of the SLP. I am Ingrid, and I am your host for season two. Yay! I have returned to all of my peeps. I'm so excited to be here. So um, last year, we powered through to have 25 episodes following the launch of the Miseducation of the SLP. And as some of you may know, I had my co-host Ayelet and my co-host Ashanti. And so there was a little bit of transitionary things happening there. And so we took a nice big break so that we could kind of process our lives and ultimately came down to the conclusion that it's time to kind of revamp the show. I absolutely will be maintaining my host status and just having guests come through rotate it out. Um, And the format of us having stories that we share and dialogue on, I will still be introducing those so that other SLPs can listen to transparent, honest expression of career. But it's going to be peppered with some other things that we all as SLPs really want to dig into and understand through this process of being a speech-language pathologist. Now, there's going to be a wide range of different individuals that I have on the show to basically kind of vet out the spaces that we just don't really have good, clear perspective on and, you know, develop this understanding of where our power lies as speech pathologists, where our ability to execute this job lies, and, how we can do better at being independent negotiators, independent, knowledgeable professionals, and advocate for ourselves in the spaces where we get into serious frustration, pinned down, burnt out, you know, dynamics across this business model healthcare system. All of that being said, I have the greatest pleasure of introducing a gentleman that I got to know through a group of other Black SLPs, which I found to be really interesting because, you know, being 3% of the population of the speech pathology world, it's a rare experience to be able to be in a room or in a collective with other SLPs that kind of have similar to same experiences as you. And he is the lone ranger of being the gentleman of the group. So I find this to be even more appealing because he's like the, the tiniest of tiniest percentages of SLP. And yet he comes hard hitting with an extensive background. So Mr. Jackson, I'd love it for you to take it away for me and give me some, um, you know, little tidbits about the man that I have as my guest. Well, thank you so much, Ingrid. And please, Mr. Jackson makes me feel like I am um, too, too grown. <laughs> too grown. I'll take it. I'll take it. Cause I feel the vibe that you're giving. And so I was like, you know what, maybe we'll do that. But, um, I am Gerald Jackson. Nice to be here. I didn't realize that you had um, a 25 episode history under your belt, which is awesome. Congrats on that. And in the first season of you doing this podcast. So I'm excited to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. And, um, you know, you mentioned me being the Lone Ranger in this group. (laughs) And while it's funny, 
um, in this in the context that we're talking now, it's just kind of the life that I've lived. So um, it's not <laughs> uncommon, and I don't feel as uncomfortable as people think that you should be. Um, I've had the fortune though to work with other um, SLPs who are men. Um, and then some of them who are also black, uh, which is great. People talk about um, not seeing a lot of black men in this field. And of course, I'll go back through my history and what I've been going through. But it's interesting for me because my entry into this profession as an undergraduate at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a historically black institution, our program was founded by a black man who, and and this is where I'm doing a little bit of historical research to verify this in the ways that I can, but as I understand it, one of the first Black men to receive his master's degree, like back in the late 40s, early 50s, um, his name is Samuel Geralds, Mr. Samuel Geralds, and he started the program there um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at Southern University, and was still very active in the department when I started my journey to become an SLP um, back then. So I had that experience of being uh, taught by a black male SLP. And then in our cohort, as we were going through, there were at least five of us sitting in the class. So I just, I knew it was a minority in the sense of numbers, but I just figured that this was the norm. Like I would see, you know, more of us doing these things. And again, going to a historically black institution as an undergraduate, everyone in my class was Black. So it was learning later um, as I went on to my master's degree at Western Michigan University that I realized, yeah, that I realized like, oh, so this is not the norm. And at that point in time, I was one of two men, the only Black man, and out of all of the students, I think we had a cohort of like t- somewhere between 25 or so um, students. I was one of three people who were Black. And then um, there were other individuals who came from other backgrounds. Um, we had a um, person who was Cuban, someone who was Mexican, or at least um, part of the, her background was Mexican, and another one who had part of her background as Puerto Rican. And the reason why this happened, we were the first class in our graduate program at Western to have such diversity because our major professor who wrote a grant for language and literacy in diverse populations was Dr. Yvette Heider. And so she wrote this grant that offered training assistantships and um, and scholarship to complete your graduate studies was the first of its kind. And this was in 2000. Okay. And so this was the first class that they had such a diverse population of individuals, and that would have been eight out of the total 25 that were from a background other than white. And um, so that's where I started to get my experience where realizing like, oh, so this is not as multicultural <laughs> as I thought it was going to be. So anyway, um, it's just interesting to just kind of go through these different spaces and and listen to people's experiences of like, I've never seen a black SLP. I've never seen a black man as an SLP. And I started off with a different experience and then was thrown into the world of being less than 1%. 
So, yeah. Mm. But my uh, background um, is, as I said, as a speech language pathologist, I have been practicing since 2004. So this makes year 18. And that is just kind of mind blowing for me because you can't tell me that I did not just finish my master's degree in 2004. (laughs) You cannot tell me that that didn't just happen. I feel like that experience is so real and so um, alive that um, that it doesn't seem like 18 years have, has passed. But like I said, I attended Southern University for my undergraduate program um, and then went on to Western Michigan University for my graduate program. And another connection that, you know, you go through these things and you don't think about it until later on, just how things shape. But um, I went to the program that was started by Charles, Charles Van Riper, who is identified as the father of stuttering. But he was also a mentor professor for Mr. Gerald's, you know, where I went to school as an undergraduate. So it was interesting to end up at that program, considering the relationship that I had with uh, Mr. Gerald's and his relationship with Charles Van Riper. So it was an interesting um, kind of circle. And of course, by the time I attended school at Western, um, Van Riper had passed on. So, um, but his legacy definitely was one that was strong. And one was interesting because we'd always heard like, oh, stuttering guy, stuttering guy. But when I got there, I learned so many other aspects of how he, um, how he was as a leader and the kind of things that he did and his um, alter ego um, as a, as an author of books. And um, it just was really interesting to learn about that history. Um, But when I finished my my graduate program, I decided to move from Michigan back to Louisiana, which is where I'm from, and I started my clinical fellowship experience in a public school uh, in the Baton Rouge area. And um, from there, was then recruited to do uh, a statewide assistive technology program where I was a facilitator for 16 school districts across North. East Louisiana, which happened to be really rural. So building capacity for assistive technology programming, um, how to engage in assistive technology services within the school district, which a lot of districts there did need the building of capacity and understanding what it was and how to implement that. And that was really intriguing to me because it, it involved a lot of training. It involved a lot of technical support and assistive technology was an area that I was interested in all the way back from graduate school, but I didn't think that I'd be able to break out to that into that so early in my career, like my second year out. And I thought that that was going to be the job that took me <laughs> to all kinds of places that I wanted to go because I loved all aspects of it. But as my life has unfolded, I recognize that the path that's been um, laid out for me has been one for me to follow where experiences allow me to go and just to listen to the whispers that say, hey, it's time for you to try something else. So um, after that, I was recruited back to Western Michigan University, um, my third year working um, to be a clinical um, educator, as well as a graduate program coordinator. Um, back at Western Michigan University. So full-time faculty at age 26 and uh, really just trying to figure out, was I ready for that shift and was I in a place? And apparently since they came and recruited me, they thought that I had what was necessary, which was a great experience and kind of was another springboard for the things that I've been able to do later on in my career. Um, I ended up being the first Black 
male faculty member that they ever had. And I don't think that they've had one since I've left. Um, Dr. Yvette Hyder, who I referenced earlier, has been the longstanding only Black um, SLP faculty member since before I started there and when I was there as a student and then until she retired, which now they have another faculty member there who is Black. Um, and they are working on diversifying their faculty, which is a whole nother conversation we can get into. Hmm? Go ahead. I was just thinking to myself, I mean, in the respects of diversifying um, faculty mm-hmm. members in, in, it's interesting, the idea that they, you know, really identified something in you to recruit mm-hmm. you and bring you back. And I'm wondering how many young black women went through that program and if any of them have ever had that experience. From my knowledge, since I have kind of stayed close with the faculty, um, I stayed close with the faculty after I graduated um, because I made some really close personal relationships with many of them, um, black, white, and otherwise. Um, They really, I really can say that while I had some interesting experiences in my graduate studies, there were a number of faculty who rallied around me and wanted me to be successful and really supported me, uh, which we know was a foundation for me. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm I'm just curious, even with mm-hmm. that, even with that, you know, connection, it's just something I'm curious about because the SLP environment mm-hmm. is predominantly right. women. There are men, of course, of course. but this rich connection with their students, their deep, rich investment Mm -hmm. in it, it can vary. Very much. It can vary. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, like you said earlier about Black women who've had that experience. I don't know. I can't speak to that. Um, I've had colleagues of mine who don't feel like their experience at the same institution that we were in that cohort together don't feel like they got that from a lot of faculty. It all kind of went back for those of us who were Black to Dr. Hyder. But I, I was fortunate mm-hmm. to have Dr. Hyder plus. And I don't think that some of my other, at the time, graduate cohort members and now colleagues and friends felt that all around richness. I think that they've gotten it from some people on faculty, but I don't think our experiences were the same. I don't know of anyone from my cohort that has gone back to engage in teaching or anything. I know that there have been some some discussions that people have had are just, you know, them being acknowledged. But I do know as of now, another colleague of mine who I met ironically as a, uh, she was a student when I came back as a young faculty member. And now she and I work together and collaborate on things. And she's now a, has her doctorate and she's at a university. She is now doing adjunct work with them. And um, <clears throat> she's the first one that I've known personally to be involved in any way that was a former student and is a black woman. So, you know, and that's been a number of years. So that is something interesting to explore. Ingrid sounds like another episode. Well, I have a tendency to ask questions just based on what I listen Mm -hmm. to. And it leads me to being an individual that is very like science, historical Mm -hmm. research, based. And then I frame everything based on posing those questions, which results in me being a very articulate and knowledgeable individual, because it really isn't to be a definition or a stamp on anything. It is to wonder within the context of the United States of America, a patriarchal Mm -hmm. system in a profession with 
a predominant, you know, overpowering experience of white mm-hmm. women who do appreciate men, number one, and then also have an even more, you know, interesting softness towards black mm-hmm. men. Does any of that historical richness apply to what your experiences might have been in comparison to what black women experience um, in regards to their own, uh, you know, trajectory Mm -hmm. in this profession? Because black women in society are considered a lot of notions, a lot of, uh, you know, crushing ideas historically that are being reworked in a lot of people's mind today, but would the trajectory of a black woman have been possible like mm-hmm. yours in, in a white woman environment? And I don't know about mm-hmm. that. I don't, it isn't reflected in representation yeah. from any person I've ever encountered that was a black SLP. Hmm. So to hear it, you know, what your experience and what other um, black males, you know, a lot of them are more academic inclined and, you know, more ingratiated in that space, you know, not as much in the clinical space per Mm -hmm. se, although I have encountered my, I have encountered some, but like, there's just a bit more of a door opening in that sense. So I'm just like, I wonder if any of that context plays into the part as to why. But this is just me, yeah. you know. No, I, and I see why you bring that up. And it, it, it does offer more food for thought into why this might happen. Um, and I think that it, it's something to really have a platform to discuss and really dive into. I think that we find very interesting um, themes from that type of discussion. Because as I think about some of the Black men that I know and I've gotten to know over my career... Um, some of them are in the academic or the university environment, academia, as they would say, and some of them are in other places. But um, to to think about who poured into them and who wanted to see them succeed and what experiences that they've had, I, I know that some of them have expressed various degrees of um, all the things that you can imagine a, a Black SLP might experience going through school. But some of them have risen to be very successful in that academic environment. And I wonder about that nurturing. We had a discussion with the men of Mbosla, the National Black Speech Language Hearing Association, a week ago. And we didn't really dive into that part, but we did talk about some of our shared experiences of how we have experienced micro and macro aggressions across our career, even going back as far as being a student. Um, so yeah, that would be a, I, I think that would be a very interesting interesting discussion because my experience in the academic university environment, um, it, it crossed a lot of different things. Um, experiencing, like you said, being, uh, respected and, um, acknowledged as a quote unquote competent colleague, um, but also being questioned, um, and in some instances micromanaged by some of those people. Um, in that aspect when it came to um, interactions with students, when it came to some of the things that I was tasked to do as being the person who was in charge of the graduate program as the coordinator, in addition to being a new faculty member um, and being challenged by other faculty members who were white, um, 
but also I didn't have a history with them. So it was an interesting dynamic to be a former student and be a colleague to former professors who saw you in the light of, oh, you were my student, but now actually giving me respect as their colleague. But then people who I didn't have a relationship with who were new to that environment um, by the time I had gotten there as a, as a um, faculty member um, who didn't share some of the values that I shared, we would often clash and have very different views of how things should look. And those were the individuals who I had um, to go to battle with um, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was just an interesting dynamic too. But I, I don't, I don't think we've had a lot of conversations where you're talking about, I think this is a, a way to open the door to, to kind of explore some of that, Ingrid. Well, it really, it's just always something because I always try to take in all kinds of different perspectives mm-hmm. in it, you know, from all different angles. So, you know, on the overall scope of the 8% in the overall scope of the males mm-hmm. in our profession, which is like 4%, where do the males lie in terms of their process? Yes, of course, they're not going to be their, you know, their intersectionality across different things definitely will cause them to have shared like mm-hmm. experiences. The trajectory of being in a country that's rooted in patriarch, mm-hmm. you know, mindset, what was intrinsically advantageous to them that wasn't necessarily felt overall that allowed your trajectory to be where you're like a 26 year old professor, Mm -hmm. you know, or a clinical, Mm -hmm. you know, mentor to people like what allows such an early rise that ended up defining your career in this environment and allowed you to even step into the roles of, you know, some really powerful spaces through the organization of ASHA, you know, on the board of different, um, um, ASHA organizations yeah. that were from that were at the state level. I mean, you've had just this opportunity to open this up for your career based on the fact that you've just had this reputation, this exposure, this opportunity, and you've, of course, deserved every inch mm-hmm. of it because you learned within the context of all those spaces. But that's the potential of, of any, any speech language pathology. Mm-hmm that really is driven and interested in this career and how many people are really given that opportunity for real. And is it lended more to men simply because of the fact that they're men, even if they might experience some of the other intersectional problems that we have as people of minority, but you're still considered a Mm -hmm. man. And so, um, yeah. And that's interesting. That's an interesting point. And, I've talked about, because there's been a question that has been asked when I've um, engaged with other people is, you know, what have, what has been your experience as a man and what are some of the privileges that you think that you've gotten even being a black male? Um, but also, what are the challenges? And one of my responses has been, you know, it's interesting to say this and to think about it, but some of the, the challenges that I've experienced, like being the only one in the room or being um, looked at under a microscope or being, you know, questioned has also been to my benefit, being the only person in the room, you know, being questioned. And when these things happen, the way that you respond and the way that you engage and the way that you interact and as we are always being put on display to prove who we are and what we have to offer, 
um, in those responses, you know, being myself and being um, able to express and explain and engage with people as to what my beliefs are, what my thoughts are, and what has my what has my path been to this point in time um, has given me then a platform to expand upon upon those ideals and put me in places in the rooms with people um, who have allowed for me to have other experiences. So I. I do find it interesting that it's kind of like this double edge because I'm black, I'm on display in this profession, but also being on display has allowed me to use that platform to open doors or to have experiences that may not have been opened otherwise. So to your point, is it because of that? Um, I've thought about that from a perspective, but I've also, because I am very deeply spiritually rooted, um, not so much religious, um, I have believe that my steps have been ordered for different things, even when I haven't understood it. And it's not until I can look back and say, and see how these things have been connected in ways that I wasn't even prepared for, or so I thought, um, these things have happened, or how has this been manifested? Is this what I've really thought about? Is this what I really prayed about? Is this what I manifested all the way back as a child and didn't realize, you know, because one of the things that I used to be teased about was speaking quote unquote so properly all the time and then engaging people in ways of how they should think and how they should talk and while i ended up in the profession that's all about and i don't i don't like the thought behind this and this is something that i've wanted to continue to work to change is fixing people because i don't believe that we fix people i believe that we support them in the ways that is most important to them but that whole idea of helping someone think differently or helping someone communicate in a different way apparently has been something I've been doing since I was a child with some conversations that people have brought up to me, reminding me of things that I've said to them <laughs> and all of that. And this is really interesting. So maybe my path has always been designed for these things. And it's just been kind of up to me how I've navigated it. I don't know. But what you bring mm-hmm. up is a historical perspective that also, you know, <clears throat> shines light on why some of these things might happen. So really interesting to to think about. Well, one of the things that caused me to be inquisitive about you and bringing you onto the inaugural show for season mm-hmm. two had a lot to do with your involvement okay. with ASHA. Um, when we as SLPs annually kind of put ourselves in a frustrated space because it's now time to pay our Mm -hmm. dues. Um, You know, there's a lot of, of just deep, deep, deep rooted resentment over the idea that we're paying for this certification that brings no value to Mm -hmm. our lives. And, you know, I relinquished NICE's, I relinquished my license to practice as a mm-hmm. clinician um, after getting into a healthy amount of trouble with the state of Florida simply because I refuse to be an expert in a field and have somebody argue with me. I don't have the capacity to deal with it. And my state board did not agree mm-hmm. with me that being a master's degree level individual with a 
extensive 12 year career with continuing education all the way through deemed me competent to argue with a medical Mm -hmm. doctor. And thus that disagreement led to my resignation of all of it and going peace out speech pathology practice and hello speech pathology Mm -hmm. advocacy Mm -hmm. (laughs) because no one around me is advocating for the expertise of the speech pathologist in the hard places like the legal realm I, i find it to be completely unethical for us to move as a full-on science, developing all this innovative thing and doctors or, you know, they can always crush your dreams Mm -hmm. in a way uh, simply because that is the highest order in healthcare and no one shall ever put them asunder. And it's like, but that's not actually accurate. So in that, um, I have the pleasure of, 2021 December 31st going, I don't have to pay this (laughs) and I'm I'm never going to have to pay this again. And I found after that point, I really started assessing everything around me. Like why are academics required? They're not actually clinically practicing. Mm -hmm. What difference does it make? They have a PhD. Why are we continuing to buy into this experience of CCC for the propriety of it? And it led me down to asking questions, even internally with Mm -hmm. Asha, for where did the C's come from? Like, why do we have this? When did it originate? What was the point? And I learned that it had a lot to do with the conversion of a bachelor degree level to a master's degree level. And um, a lack of clarity from people that were reimbursing for the speech pathology services, considering competency. Now, in no other realm, like when, you know, the doctoral program rolled out for, for physical therapists or the master's program rolled out for physical therapists, did they require any additional certification for physical therapists as they're continuing to advance their degrees? And yet for speech pathologists, it was determined that we should create this wonderful certificate that was anchored to our national organization that would be paid annually without a single break. And so in trying to decode what it's like after 30 years of uh, nearly 30 years of having this requirement, my questions really lie in why? Because we are all now the advanced degree. Mm-hmm. We're all now mastered. So What exactly is this need for the CF program? What exactly is the need? And I mean that honestly, what is the need of it versus like, what is the desired objective? Because those two things are not the same thing Mm -hmm. as a clinician, as a person who walked the path of the CF, as a person who practiced as a clinical professional for the majority of my career, uh, which, you know, spans over 12 years as a practitioner. What exactly is the need 
from my master's degree that I have to maintain this certificate for my entire career, spending $225 every Mm -hmm. year. Where did you see that as a person who not only participated in ASHA, but also discussed and dialogued about the CF program? I'd really love to get your your perspective on that. Sure. So it's interesting. Um, starting off in this profession, going all the way back to, again, being a person in undergrad, I, before I really made the decision of if this was what I was going to do or not, even as an undergraduate, I started to read about what the requirements were and what did it mean to become this professional. Um, And having conversations with people about the different levels of the profession, even though they have not always been recognized, he's like, you know, you can get your bachelor's degree in this and you can start working. And what does this mean? so you can be an assistant. And what does that mean? So you would work under someone who is fully licensed or fully certified and do the work. And I just, well, why do we have a master's degree? And so then exploring that and then reading the certification requirements. And it just was interesting to me that after being a certification licensure nerd as a very early early on in my career as a student, and then ending up being able to participate, um, as a member or be on the council for clinical certification at this point is really, has been really an interesting process. Um, So I will say that early on, I didn't do a lot of background research on as to why this was a requirement more that is, this is a part of the process to become. So this is what you do and this is what you work to achieve. And I probably would say that most of us think about it that way. And it's not until you get into some of the specifics that you start to wonder well, what's the necessity of it? And um, from what I perceived as I started this career, this was the goal to achieve the opportunity to be able to show that you are minimally competent, quote unquote, to address the needs of individuals who come to you with a communication concern. So if we want to really be able to do the best that we can, we are not going to be only achieving our master's degree, but we also are going to be able to achieve this certification that um, is going to show that we have the stamp of approval to go out and do whatever is needed to be done. It wasn't until later that I realized that it was this minimum requirement, right? The minimum competencies, that it also was voluntary, that we didn't have to um, actually get the CCC if we want to practice because we could go to our state or whatever state that was in and achieve licensure and be able to practice within that state. Um, And that was something that was eye-opening to me when I realized early on in my career. So then why do we have to do this? So I started to do a little bit more digging and see kind of what, what's the point of, of having this credential. And part of it is explained as a way to um, have consumer confidence confidence, but then also recognizing that it's a, again, a minimal thing that's optional. So if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. But at this point in time, most of the states have agreed that this is the minimum competency and kind of aligns it with their licensure programs, which in many cases, if you want to work in your state, you have to have the license, even though you don't have to have your C's, but because they become really aligned in many ways, it's kind of like you have to have both. So Um, To say that I have an opinion as to what's the point of doing that, I have not formulated that all the way 
because there's a part of me that's continues to say we are on this trajectory because this helps us to be identified as um, as an individual who is competent to do the work that's required, just as in other professions that are required to receive certain certifications or um, certain other um, points of documentation about the, the knowledge and skills that they've achieved. Um, and I've even engaged in a conversation with my sister about this who is not in our field. Um, she's in computer science, so she's in the tech world, which as a Black woman, you know, the 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 numbers are not that far from what we experience as Black people in our profession. So we engage in these conversations. And so she's fully able to run out there and go with her bachelor's degree. Having a master's degree or a PhD puts her in, a, in another category. And then I asked, I said, so with these certifications that you all go and get, what does that do for you? And so for her, it specializes her in a way to do certain tasks or to get certain jobs or to have certain understanding that allows her to do other things. Well, our certification is more of a general certification. And if we want to get specialty certification, there are other specialty options that we can get through the um, specialty certification program in ASHA. But our certification doesn't go into those specialized areas. So it just makes me think about, okay, well, like you said, what is it that we're really achieving here? And so that's been a lot of the questions that I've been posing to our council as to what is it that we're doing? And if we're saying that there are certain standards that we have to meet and certain standards that we're expecting people to meet, what kind of um, barriers are we happening to be putting in place that are not so loudly spoken that when people go after this, there are some significant things that they might meet as a challenge? And so how do we reduce that? Because we don't have any other options at this point in time to solidify what your role is in this profession without having your C's. And that has been a very interesting conversation that's come up later. And like you bring up the point, well, we have our master's degree. We've gotten these specialty um, experiences through our clinical work, through our academic work. What more is it that we need? And I think that's still a question that's on the table as to how we continue to show the value and the necessity of this certification. And that has been something that has been a recent question for me because before I was like, like I said, this was what we need to do. So this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to be on this train to figure it out. But now it's like, well, what is it that we're doing? And with so many people asking that question, how as an association are we going to explain and continue to justify what it is that we're doing and why it is so important for us to have this certification. Um, with regard to, go ahead. Let me, let me do one little mm -hmm. interjection in that. Why haven't you just considered the idea of walking it back as you know what, it really isn't something that helps to do anything to be perfectly frank. And if there's no issues, no issues, in the states that do not require C's and there are people that are clinically practicing to the bachelor's level as assistants independent, you know, independently in schools, especially with just the oversight of an SLP, you know, in terms of within the school, but they can have their own groups and things like that. Um, if we're working to that gradient of our degree and we are getting absolutely no harm in terms of clinical practice across the board in those states that the C's are not required, how can we walk it back instead of continuing to say, let's keep it? 
why are we always choosing to validate maintaining it? Or is that just the easier route because of what the prestige or the idea or, you know, the last 30 years of great marketing and great, you know, pressure from a very, you know, substantial organization, like they have the capacity with their relationships with state to say, this is really beneficial. You should add this to your licensing requirements so that, you know, we don't lose mm-hmm. our people. There's, 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 there's mobilization of that. It isn't just, it didn't just naturally happen out of nothing to where these relationships don't lead to things happening behind closed doors that we wouldn't really have any privy to. I mean, we don't even have literally privy to discuss how we choose our president. So, or our CEO, like we don't really have a lot of transparency in these experiences. And so you're telling me that there's not going to be a level of clandestine experiences when they're out there trying to advocate to maintain a national organization that is predominantly based on the funding of these certificates. I don't know that I would want to hold on to that. I would want to walk it back because if we're successfully practicing without the C's, doing an excellent job in these states and there's really no difference, why wouldn't we consider that at all? Like, why would that not be something that we have to also ask? I think you pose a good question, but I'm not sure if I could speak to everything being the case that people are doing adequate work independently, specifically we're talking about assistance, you know, without oversight of some body that is going to look at what is happening to make sure that we're not only protecting practitioners, but also those who are receiving those supports. So I can't say to you that, you know, everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing consistently and it's working fine. Because we, as we've looked into some things, we've seen that there are some practice issues that exist when people have not um, gone through adequate training or are continuing to um, get education on things that are changing in the profession or to, um, to learn techniques that maybe they did not get with their um, experience as a bachelor's level practitioner and then moving on into to their master's degrees or whatever you, you know, whatever the path may be for people. So I'm not sure no, that, no. um, but- Certainly, but, I, but you, but we do have in this whole scheme that happens even with the master's mm-hmm. degree in CCC. Like it's across mm-hmm. the scope that you will find those people that are not actually practicing right. appropriately. I mean, you know that from you know, going to courses where you're like, wow, especially dysphagia courses where you're like, wow, we don't know this. You have your C's. <laughs> cool. Okay. Cool. 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 Okay. <laughs> so it is across the entire broad scope. I don't know that I would apply that in correlation to obtaining the C's. I just think that what you pose is an interesting question. And it's one that I I will tell you that I don't have an answer as to why I walk it back. But my perspective has been, if we are questioning the necessity of something and really trying to dive in to ask the questions why, for me, when I wanted to know answers to that and try to figure out what can we do in these systems that exist to improve them, make them more equitable, uh, to understand how these things happen. For me, it's been the case of getting involved and 
becoming a part of this so I can understand the rationale, the mindset, who's behind, like you said, these closed doors that are making these decisions and these choices that many people believe that they don't have access or are not privy to. And for me, exposing and going into these environments to figure out how this all is happening, because I'm just naturally curious about how these things work, has been how I have decided to address some of the concerns that have been raised, even from myself to say like, well, what's the point of this? Why do we have to do this? Why do we, why do we need to do this, that, and the other? And, and making sure that what my voice is while this is still in place, having people understand what is expected, how this is happening, what your roles are, what your responsibilities are, and what your options are. So that's how I have gone about figuring these things out. And like I said, it wasn't until later in my career where I actually got into the situation where I can get into these spaces and understand how this is going about and then making recommendations or having thoughts or conversations like this to figure out what is it that we do next. So I don't have an answer for you as why don't we walk it back. Um, I haven't gotten that far in my thought process. The only reason why Mm -hmm. I ask as to why walk it back is because I've been a clinician for a majority of my career. And so from the clinical standpoint Mm -hmm. of walking in the streets, looking at other SLPs that are right beside Mm me, seeing how the variation can be in clinical Mm -hmm. practice. And I was a traveler on top of that. And they're like, you're the first SLP that, and the amount of times I heard how excellent I was as a speech language pathologist in comparison to somebody who was just atrocious at it. And we were still with the the same same certification. Yeah. And the same credentials and the same education, supposedly. Um, What was the difference? And I've experienced that too, Ingrid. And, um, I I do wonder, and let me tell you that there have been conversations that have been had about this and what does it mean to hold this credential and then continue to show the, like we said, the minimum competence that's supposed to be across the board. But as we know, all programs, all situations, and all people aren't created in the same way. So we have these situations, like go back to the CF, for, ex- for instance, For me, when I thought about the clinical fellowship, I thought about this being that extension of learning as a new professional and the whole idealistic idea of what it was supposed to embody. So I am finishing my master's program. This is me stepping out into my career as a new person learning the things and putting these things into practice, but also still having an opportunity of having someone who's going to mentor me and give me tools and techniques who've been doing this, who also has achieved the certification. And now I'm going to become a better practitioner as of having this experience. That's the idea that I had. That's the idea that has been presented. And that is the experience that I had. However, I've come to find throughout being a clinical fellow mentor, being a person who has um, sent graduate students out into the world, being a person who has taught, being a person who's been on these committees, and being a person who's received SLPs um, as a you know lead SLP, as a special education director, whatever you know other positions that I've had as a business owner, um, you come to recognize that everybody's experiences are different. So it started to make me think: Well, what is what is breaking down in the process as to where? 
we are not having people who are going through their programs and then having a successful experience post their program through their clinical fellowship due to either not being mentored, not getting the full experience, not having that idealistic um, scenario happen that I had and that I've provided for those who've come under um, my mentorship. Why does this why is this so variable and what is going on and where has the message been lost or was there a true message to begin with? And I think you kind of alluded to this. Um, or is it just something that we're supposed to do? And so my walk has been while we have this system that is still existing, how do we make it? better for those who are coming through and getting this experience and having to do this until we find other options. So that has been one of my targets is to put word out about what the clinical experience is supposed to be about, what supervision is supposed to look like, what clinical education should look like in this collaborative relationship between you and this other person. Um, And how is the clinical fellowship supposed to be completed? And what is it that people are not doing or why are they not doing it in the way that's going to be of maximum benefit to those who are going through that process? Well, we are going to end on that note for this portion of the discussion. Myself and Mr. Jackson are going to continue this conversation in episode two, because there's still more to be discussed and there's still more to unfold. And so at this point, I do want to allow all of you guys to return to your day. And I hope the inaugural episode for season two was stimulating and interesting and dynamic and gave you some serious food for thought as we continue to have these interesting questions and try to develop some education about what it is that we're paying Mm -hmm. for every year that we consistently have problems with. And is it better to uphold the system, Mm -hmm. continue to advocate for the betterment of the system that's already established, or is it to our benefit to break it all down and say, you know, our master's degree is enough and we shouldn't continue to have to uphold this organization with this utilization of the seas. And we can use a new method if we really want to develop specialties, um, you know, as our sister disciplines do. I mean, ultimately we are all therapists and although they got, you know, they had their own experience as they advanced in degrees, we have our own lane and it just seems like something we need to delve into a little deeper. So I, I cannot tell you enough, Jay, how much I appreciated part one. So let's delve into part two when you have some time. I, I would okay? love to do that. And thank you for engaging me. I always enjoy talking to you, as you know, because it allows me to think about things um, in maybe ways I have thought about it to a certain degree, but then to open my perspective to other um, ways of thinking about it and ways to kind of push forward. So I appreciate having this conversation and then you being um, open to hearing just these different perspectives as you always are. So it's been really good. And I like to be um, challenged the way that, um, and challenge not being a negative word, but to be challenged to think of things in different ways that I haven't before. And, and those are the kind of conversations that really stimulate me. So thank you for inviting me here. Of course, of course. And the purpose is so that all perspectives can be present so that we all can have more knowledge and 
and become less miseducated and more knowledgeable about the speech language pathologist profession. So I look forward to seeing you guys in episode two. Thank you, my dear friend. And we will, we'll have more talks. Sounds great. All right. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Bye.